while other cultures were taking their best guess by thinking that Earth may be resting on the back of giant animals like turtles or elephants, God's word plainly stated that Earth free floats in space. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist podcast. I'm your host, Nathan, and in this episode, we will be discussing seven hidden treasures of the Bible. And if you haven't listened to my first episode covering hidden treasures of the Bible, I'd recommend you go back and listen to episode number four of this podcast. Now, to start this episode off, I want to begin by talking about the origin of death all the way back in Genesis. As you probably recall from the creation story, God makes a very good creation and tells Adam and Eve that they can eat of every tree from the Garden of Eden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After God created Adam on day 6, Genesis 2 verses 15 to 17 say that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then later on in the story, the serpent deceives Eve into eating the forbidden fruit, which leads to what is commonly referred to as the fall, when God enables chaos and death to enter the creation due to man's sin. Genesis 3 verses 4 to 7 record that the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat the fruit, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, I want you to ask yourself, were Adam and Eve more like God or less like God after they ate the fruit? See, we tend to think that mankind was in a more godlike state before the fall, and that after we rebelled by eating the fruit, then we were lowered to a lesser state. In reality, though, the opposite is true. The serpent made two claims to Eve when he convinced her to eat the fruit. The first claim was that she would not die if she ate it, and the second claim was that she would be like God if she ate it. While the first claim was a lie, the second claim was actually true. Directly after God declares his cursing on mankind and the earth due to the disobedience of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 verses 22 to 24 state that the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. 
So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way, to guard the way of the tree of life. So while the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave mankind wisdom to be more like God, if mankind was to eat of the tree of life, then that would result in man living forever in that state. And I want you to notice what's going on here in the passage I just read. God acknowledges that because man has gained the knowledge of good and evil, man has become like God. What's really interesting is that because man has now put himself in this state, God banishes him from the Garden of Eden specifically to prevent him from eating of the tree of life and living in that state forever. We tend to think that God banishing man from the Garden of Eden was part of the curse, but it was actually a blessing. This is because after gaining the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve now had a responsibility which they had no ability to fulfill. Instead of just walking alongside God in ignorance and bliss and fully trusting him, Adam and Eve gained the knowledge of good and evil, which now required them to make judgments. And this is why the first thing they do after gaining this knowledge is realizing that they are naked and then they try to cover themselves up. This is the very first act of religion, which is man trying to justify himself by his own works instead of fully trusting in God. What's really beautiful is that after Adam and Eve try to cover their own nakedness with leaves, God makes them coats of skin, which symbolizes that only God can be the one to save us and that blood must be shed to cover our sins, as noted in Hebrews 9.22. See, making judgments about right and wrong was originally only meant to be for God, who is perfect and all-knowing. However, now that mankind chose to take on this knowledge in attempt to be more like God, God has no choice but to hold us accountable for all of our judgments. And because human beings are imperfect, this inevitably leads to us falling short and being alienated from a full relationship with God. A human being who does not have a relationship with God is spiritually dead. And this can be seen in Jesus' words as recorded in John 17, 3, which says, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we see that eternal life is to know and be in relationship with God. This would mean a spiritual death would be not knowing God. So when God told Adam that he would die the day that he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I believe he was talking about a spiritual death. Physical death was not a direct result from eating the fruit. Instead, the physical death occurred because God purposefully prevented man from eating of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The fact that we die physically 
is actually a blessing from God because it prevents us from living in this fallen state for eternity. Physical death is a necessity for mankind to be reconciled to God, not only because it allows us to escape this fallen state, but also because God's plan of redemption involved the physical death of Jesus Christ. So, to sum up this hidden treasure of the Bible, we as humans are actually more like God in our fallen state than we were before the fall. Because we chose to gain the knowledge of good and evil and take on the moral responsibility of making judgments, which we all inevitably fail at, we voluntarily separated ourselves from a right relationship with God, which resulted in spiritual death. In order to offer us redemption from this fallen state of spiritual death, God purposefully banished us from access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden so that we would not exist in this fallen state forever, but instead be able to escape this state by a physical death. And when I first discovered this, it blew my mind because I always thought physical death was a direct result of the fall. However, learning this information made me realize that the type of death which resulted from the fall was actually a spiritual death, and that physical death is a blessing by God. So, hopefully this hidden treasure can give you a brighter perspective on physical death. And yes, while of course death is looked at as the enemy, um, you can think of you know, in the New Testament, it says, Oh, death, where is your sting? It talks about death being the final enemy to be defeated. Um, but a, a physical death was a necessary enemy that God had to introduce to his creation in order to redeem us from this fallen state. The second hidden treasure we're going to look at can be found in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name have cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity." Now, what's ironic is that people who believe in the heresy of earning your salvation by works oftentimes use this passage to try and say that you have to work your way to heaven because Jesus says that only those who do the will of the Father will enter into heaven. However, notice that the people who Jesus is rejecting here are the ones who are relying on their works to get them into heaven. These people have cast out demons, they've done wonderful works, and they even call Jesus Lord. But the reason they will be rejected on Judgment Day is because they ultimately failed to do the will of the Father. The really cool thing about this passage is that there is only one specific place in the entire Bible where Jesus specifically says what the will of the Father is. And that passage is John 6, verses 38 to 40, 
where Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So what's awesome is that Jesus says both what the Father's will is for us and what the Father's will is for him. For us, it is to simply believe on Jesus, which means fully putting your faith in him as Lord and Savior by accepting his atoning sacrifice. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many people who simply call him Lord will not get into heaven because there are many people who acknowledge that Jesus is God but fail to put all of their trust in his atoning sacrifice alone as their source of salvation. An example of this would be the gospel promoted by Catholicism, which claims that you need faith plus works to be saved. As Paul describes in Romans 10 verses 1 to 4, those who think their works have anything to do with their justification before God fail to understand salvation and are therefore not actually saved. So the Father's will for us is to rely solely on the work and person of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Jesus also acknowledges that the will of the Father for himself is that he should lose none of those who the Father has given him, which is a reference to believers. And this is proof of once saved, always saved, because Jesus states here that it is his job to make sure that no Christians become lost. Whenever I'm talking with someone who thinks a Christian can lose their salvation, I usually bring up this passage and point out that if they think any true Christian has ever lost their salvation, then by default, they must think Jesus is literally a loser because Jesus clearly says here that it is his job to not lose any of us. So to sum up this hidden treasure, Jesus says in Matthew 7 that only those who do the will of the Father will enter into heaven and that simply calling him Lord or doing good works in his name will not result in true salvation. There is only one place in the entire New Testament where Jesus Christ specifically says what the will of the Father is, and this is in John 6, verses 38 to 40. And in this passage, Jesus supports the doctrine of salvation by faith alone by stating that the Father's will for us is that we believe only on him as Lord and Savior. And Jesus also points out that the Father's will for himself is that he will not lose any Christian, which supports the doctrine of once saved, always saved. The third treasure I want to look at is actually found at the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus states the following in Matthew 5, 17-20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. 
I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will in no wise pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Just like the previous passage we discussed in Matthew 7, those who believe in a heretical works-based salvation also tend to point to this passage and attempt to support their view. However, when we understand the depth of meaning going on here, we see that the Sermon on the Mount is actually meant to demonstrate that there is absolutely no way anyone could justify themselves by their works. See, right after Jesus says these words, he then does something very unique. He actually tightens the restrictions of the law. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The whole point Jesus is making here is that if you're going to try and justify yourself by your works, you will fail. For example, if the law just says don't physically commit adultery, then a large amount of people could follow that law. However, Jesus severely tightens that restriction by saying that just lusting after someone in your mind is committing adultery. Not only are actions sinful, but the very thoughts that lead to those actions are sinful. Obviously, no one can follow this law. Just like with murder, I'm sure the vast majority of people can honestly say that they've never killed somebody but no one can honestly say that they've never hated anyone. So the whole point here is to show you that you have fallen short by your own works. Now, relating this back to the passage in question, when Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, he means that the law of God is still legitimate because that's how God will judge humanity at the end of this age. However, Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law because he is the only human who has ever lived a sinless life and perfectly followed the law. Jesus really says something radical when he exclaims that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven because the scribes and Pharisees were the best of the best in terms of the Jewish law. These were the guys who spent their entire life studying the law and trying to perform rituals in order to keep it, 
But Jesus here is acknowledging that even the scribes and Pharisees will fail to enter into the kingdom of heaven by their works. This statement would have shocked all of the Jews who were trying to justify themselves by following the law because they viewed the Pharisees as the elite law followers. The fact that even the Pharisees are unable to keep the law of God demonstrates that the only way one can truly be justified before God is to accept the work that Jesus has done for them. As Romans 3 states, By the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. So we see here that Jesus' statement at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount is actually meant to point us to him as the Savior. And now on to the fourth hidden treasure, uh, which can be found in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 to 3. And in this passage, Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now, this is a great passage to debunk the whole zero judgment ever idea, uh, but we're not going to discuss that topic in this episode. Uh, instead, I want to focus on the strange statement that Christians will judge angels. To understand this passage, we need to comprehend the hierarchy of power. This hierarchy of power, which can be found in the Old Testament, has four levels. And I'll go into detail into each level, but just looking at it superficially, at the first level is God. The second level are the sons of God. The third level are the angels. And the fourth level are human beings. So at the very top of this hierarchy, we obviously have Yahweh, the triune God who has always existed and created all things. Now, oftentimes, this is where we as Westerners stop our thinking. But just below Yahweh, we actually have other spiritual beings that are commonly referred to as the sons of God in the Old Testament. These sons of God participate in Yahweh's decision-making and were created before Yahweh created the earth, as can be seen in the book of Job. And believe it or not, Satan would fall under this category because Job 2 verse 1 says that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came also among them to present himself before Yahweh. So clearly Satan is part of this group which Job 38.7 says, All the sons of God shouted for joy when God created the foundation of the earth. So these are some pretty powerful beings, and they also have the ability to do good or evil. And God will judge these beings just like he will judge humans. And this is why Jesus says, 
in Matthew 25 that hell was created for the devil and his angels. And this verse, Matthew 25, 41, actually brings us to the third members of this hierarchy, which are the angels. Angels are basically the messengers of the spiritual realm, and according to the Bible, they can manifest in our own physical universe and interact with humans. Recall the angels who visited Sodom, as recorded in Genesis, or the fact that the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that some Christians have unknowingly interacted with angels. But after the angels on this level of hierarchy, we have human beings. And now Psalm 8 verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And it's worth mentioning that this exact passage from Psalms is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 2 verse 7. Now, Paul's statement that Christians will judge angels probably seems confusing at this point because we just saw that the Bible says God has made man a little lower than the angels, so we technically have less power than them. So the question is, why would Paul say that Christians will end up judging the angels? Well, get ready to have your mind blown. Because as stated earlier, the second highest rank on this hierarchy of power is the category Son of God. In the Old Testament, every time this phrase is mentioned, it refers specifically to spiritual beings. I read a few verses in Job which show this, and this fact can also be seen in Genesis 6. While the phrase Son of God may refer to spiritual beings in the Old Testament, I want you to ask yourself, who are the sons of God in the New Testament? If you're familiar with New Testament terminology, you'll know that the phrase child of God or son or daughter of God in the New Testament is a phrase used for Christians. So as believers in Christ, we are now the sons and daughters of God. While we say this phrase so nonchalantly, it actually holds extreme power. Because a new spiritual creation occurs the moment somebody puts their faith in Jesus and becomes a Christian, that person's status is elevated from just a normal human being to a son or daughter of God. This results in Christians moving from position number four on the hierarchy scale to position number two, which is just above the angels. And that is why Paul tells us in the New Testament that we as believers will judge angels. Because if you are a Christian, then you now outrank the angels. And I think that is pretty cool. Now, the next hidden treasure actually isn't hidden at all, but a lot of people are not aware of this passage. Uh, this treasure is really cool because it shows that the new covenant through Christ was predicted centuries before his birth. 
and I actually pointed this passage out in a conversation with an atheist once. Uh, the atheist pulled the typical, why don't you follow the laws of the Old Testament question. Um, and he, of course, he brought up laws like not wearing certain clothes, not eating certain foods, etc. And I simply told him that as a Christian living after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I am not commanded to try and follow all 613 commands of the Mosaic law. He then asked where the Bible says that, and I was able to point to a passage that not only supported my answer to his question, but also demonstrated the supernatural origin of the Bible by pointing out its predictive power. This passage is Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34, which says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. What's so cool about this passage is that it clearly states that God is going to make a new covenant in the future that will supersede the Mosaic covenant that the Israelites were living under during the time this passage was written. God also specifies that this new covenant will have to do with changing people's hearts, forgiving their sins, and providing them with a direct relationship to God. It's important to note that Jeremiah lived over 500 years before Christ was born. So here we see that over half a millennium before the life of Jesus, the Old Testament accurately predicts that God will institute a new covenant in the future. This passage is great apologetic material because it demonstrates the Bible's predictive power and it also proves that God does not expect Christians to try and follow every Old Testament law. For our sixth hidden treasure, we'll go back to Genesis again and look at the man who lived the longest in the entire history of earth. That man's name is Methuselah, and Genesis 5.27 tells us that he lived 969 years. What's interesting, though, is that even though Methuselah lived the longest out of any human, he still died before his dad did. And if that doesn't make sense to you, I recommend you do some quick research into his father, Enoch, and the strange event that happened to him. Now, the name Methuselah literally means his death shall bring. And if we see what happened during the year of Methuselah's death, it's quite amazing. When we read Genesis 5, 
we see that Methuselah was the grandfather of Noah. Now, I encourage you to check this out and do the math yourself just for fun. But Genesis 5.25 tells us that Methuselah was 187 years old when Noah's dad, Lamech, was born. We then see in Genesis 5.28 that Lamech was 182 years old when Noah was born, which would mean that Methuselah was 369 years old when Noah was born. What's really crazy is that Genesis 7 verse 6 tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the worldwide flood began, which means that the flood of Noah started the exact year when Methuselah, whose name means his death shall bring in Hebrew, died. In other words, Methuselah's name was a hidden prophecy which foreshadowed the global flood. What's so beautiful about this is that it testifies to God's mercy because the man who lived the longest is the one whose death signaled the coming of God's judgment. God gave humanity centuries to repent of their wickedness, but they refused until it was finally too late and God's wrath had to be unleashed in order for justice to prevail. And for our seventh and last hidden treasure, we'll start by looking at the Old Testament book of Job. Even though this was written thousands of years ago, Job 26 verse 7 declares that God stretches out the north over the empty place and hangs the earth upon nothing. Some people try to mock the Bible by claiming it is unscientific, when in reality, it reveals scientific truths millennia before they were common knowledge to mankind. While other cultures were taking their best guess by thinking that Earth may be resting on the back of giant animals like turtles or elephants, God's word plainly stated that Earth free floats in space. Furthermore, this verse acknowledges that God stretches out the North. Now, there are multiple verses which describe God as stretching out the heavens, which is amazing because it wasn't until the last hundred years that scientists found observable evidence that the universe is in fact expanding. Again, the Bible contained this scientific knowledge thousands of years before telescopes came along. This can clearly be seen in Isaiah 40, verse 22, which states that it is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So, this passage not only describes God as stretching out the heavens, but it also acknowledges that earth is round. This is great evidence that the Bible is divinely inspired because it accurately depicts the universe as expanding and Earth as being round and free-floating in space. Furthermore, Jesus explains in Luke 17 that when he returns, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one will be taken and the other left. Now, many commentators acknowledge 
that Jesus' statement here is a strong implication of a round earth because he states that there will be nighttime, morning, and afternoon activities all occurring when he returns. Because the entire earth will experience his return at the same exact time, this shows that Jesus knew some people experience nighttime while others experience daytime. What's neat is that there are a lot more scientific facts tucked away in the Bible, and I'd recommend you go and research this topic on your own sometime. And with that, we will conclude our second episode on the hidden treasures of the Bible. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and I truly appreciate your support for this podcast. Please reach out with any comments or questions you might have, and I'd be happy to discuss them with you. Once again, my name is Nathan, and I want to thank you for listening to the Millennial Apologist podcast. Bye.